if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Yes, indeed it is, and a good morning to you. Nine minutes after the hour of nine o'clock, Friday, 26th morning of the eighth month, year of our Lord, 2022. Let's make it count. I promise you we're going to do that coming up in the middle of the program. Actually, it's, what am I saying? It's kind of toward the beginning, half an hour from now, beg your pardon, but we do have a very packed middle of the program. Starting on about a half an hour, we're going to talk to Peter Kirsten now. Normally, we talk to Pete on Tuesdays at 10 o'clock. He has been very, very busy with out-of-state work assignments. He is back in town now and ready to join us. He'll join us at 9.35 and take us until almost our next guest at uh, 10.35, uh, Christina Hagan, former Ohio State representative and current member of the Ohio Elections Commission, Christina Hagan. So Kirsten and Hagan are two guests, back-to-back in the middle of the program, and then, uh, rather before and after them, we will be guest-free and ready for your phone calls. 216-901-0945, Either one of those numbers works just fine. Don't forget to send your messages to me at uh, alwayswrite.us. <clears throat> Record those there on the sound off button in the upper right-hand, right-hand corner of the page. And I hope you're checking that page every day. I'm going to great lengths to continue to update it with the latest news, the most important information you need to know, the conservative news and views that matter the most. We update it with show information, um, uh, interviews that you may have missed, like yesterday's with A.J. Rice about the Woking Dead. You can just click right on the page and listen to the interview with A.J. Rice. You can read the articles associated with our guests like Jason, uh, John Whitehead and Dr. Piper. So hopefully you're checking alwayswrite.us out. I put a lot of effort into that. <clears throat> 
And I hope it's worth uh, your while. So you don't have to go and shop around and look at 15 different conservative sites every day to find out what the latest news is. I do it for you, and I compile all of the best information for you right there, along with what we do live on the air. So having said all of that, there's a lot of ground to cover in this first half hour, so let's start with our Pledge of Allegiance. Patriots, please rise. Face your flag if you have one. If you do not, at least put your hand over your heart and imagine one. If you are a leftist, if you are believer, a believer in giving away our tax dollars to other people, if you are a believer in the FBI weaponizing itself against the American citizens and literally taking away their right to a free and fair election, if you believe in those things, well, then you have no idea what the flag represents anyway. You are exempted from my request to pledge your allegiance to it. Instead, you may. Take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback, your favorite pink-haired soccer player, and your favorite ex-WNBA player now signing a nine-year contract with a Russian prison. For the rest of us, however, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice. This was uh, nothing short yesterday of a bombshell, and that's why I want to lead with this in my monologue. Mark Zuckerberg is the CEO of Facebook. That means he's the leader of the, the largest online social media platform in the world. It is bigger than Twitter by a lot. It's bigger than TikTok. It's bigger, bigger than any of them. Facebook is a monster. It's a monster company. It influences a lot of people with what uh, content that can be found upon it. Mark Zuckerberg, in an interview with podcast host Joe Rogan, who does a terrific job, made a bombshell revelation, a smoking gun, if you will, admitting that Facebook did indeed attempt to um, influence the outcome of the 2020 presidential election by censoring the reach of the Hunter Biden laptop and the treasure trove of criminal activity between him and his father that existed upon it leading up to the 2020 election. He said Facebook did that. They did limit the reach of that, uh, uh, letting people get that article and information about that laptop. Remember, the entirety of the media completely ignored it. And the one media outlet that broke that was the New York Post. They reported on it, and they were banned by Twitter and Facebook. It's just astounding. Now, we all knew about that part. What you might not know, though, is that Zuckerberg now admits that they did so at the behest of the FBI. He said the FBI pushed them to censor that story because they didn't want it to affect the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. They didn't want to hurt Joe Biden. This goes back, and I have to point it out uh, because of the similarities, to what we found out about the attempt to stop Donald Trump with the dossier and the uh, you know the FISA court and the spying and the FBI uh, uh, collusion in trying to prove Donald Trump colluded with Russia. Remember Lisa Page and Peter Strzok, two FBI uh, um, heads, 
um, who are also lovers and, and adulterers and whatnot. Uh, but you remember the text messages that were uncovered? As Lisa Page said, oh, my God, Donald Trump is not going to win the presidency, is he? And Peter Strzok assured her, no, he is not. We've got it covered. He literally, that's a paraphrase, but he literally admitted to their collusion to stop Donald Trump. And that's the FBI then. This is the FBI now essentially saying we don't want anything harming Joe Biden in this presidential election. So I'm going to play this. It's two minutes and 20 seconds of Joe Rogan with Mark Zuckerberg exposing not just social media and big tech for the left-wing ideologues that they are. And the left, by the way, which continues to say any Republican who doesn't condemn January 6th and any Republican who supports Donald Trump, you don't believe in democracy and it's an attack on democracy, blah, blah, blah. If you believe in democracy at all, then you would be condemning this, condemning what big tech has done to take your vote away and to influence the outcome of your elections. And, yes, you should condemn the FBI's role in forcing that to happen. Listen to Zuckerberg with Joe Rogan. How do you guys handle things when they're uh, a big... By the way, I know Zuckerberg is clean in all of his answers, I'm hoping that Joe Rogan is, because I didn't listen closely enough to see it. Uh, he has a propensity to drop F-bombs, so Johnny Howes, be prepared. Uh, but this is the Joe Rogan portion of it. News item that's controversial. Like, there was a lot of attention on Twitter during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story, the New yeah, York we Post. Yeah, we too. Yeah, so you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. Um, I mean, basically, the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, uh, some some folks on our team, and was like, hey, um, just so you know, like, you should be on high alert. There was, the, we, we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of, of um, uh, that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. So our protocol is different from Twitter's. What Twitter did is they said, you can't share this at all. Um, we didn't do that. What we do is we have, um, if something is reported to us as potentially um, misinformation, important misinformation, we, we also have this third-party fact-checking program because we don't want to be deciding what's true and false. And for the, I think it was five or seven days when it was basically being um, being determined whether it was false um the distribution on facebook was decreased but people were still allowed to share it so you could still share it you could still consume it so when um, you say the distribution is decreased and it, it got shared it, how does that work it basically the ranking in newsfeed was a little bit less so fewer people saw it than would have otherwise so it definitely by what percentage I don't know off the top of my head, but it's hogwash. Malarkey, as Joe Biden would say. He absolutely knows how many fewer people saw it than would have seen it otherwise if they hadn't censored it. It's it's meaningful. But I mean, but basically, a- and there, that's an important line. I don't know the exact percentage, but it's meaningful. We reduce the ability to see this by a meaningful amount, which means you impacted the election at the behest of the FBI. Keep listening. Fewer people saw it than would have otherwise. So it definitely by what percentage? I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's 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 meaningful. But I mean, but basically, a um, a lot of people are still able to share it. We got a lot of complaints that that was the case. Um, you know, and obviously this is a hyper political issue. So depending on what side of the political spectrum you either think we didn't censor it enough or censored it way too much. But right. but we weren't 
sort of as black and white about it as, as Twitter. We just kind of thought, hey, look, if, if the FBI, which you know, I still view as a legitimate institution in this country, it's a very professional law enforcement, they come to us and tell us that we need to be on guard about something, then I want to take that seriously. Did they specifically say you need to be on guard about that story? I, I, no, I, I don't remember if it was that specifically, but it was. it basically fit the pattern. I hope um I hope you understood all of that. I hope you comprehend the seriousness of what he just admitted. This is what makes it a bombshell. This is what makes it a smoking gun. He admitted not only did they as Facebook make decisions to limit what people can read in making up their own mind about the validity of a story that was that was featured in the New York Post that should have been featured elsewhere. Um, themselves, um, they limited and restricted the ability to read the information, decide whether or not the firsthand eyewitness accounts were credible, the other evidence that was presented was credible. They limited the ability of people to see that by a meaningful amount, as they said. That means they impacted the election. And so that's the Facebook angle of it or the Facebook responsibility of it. But then the other part, which again is so mind-blowing here, is that he said it's the FBI who told them, be aware, there's going to be a big Russian misinformation drop coming. Russian misinformation or disinformation is coming, so you really want to limit the reach of that. And then, boom, here comes the laptop story that then a bunch of retired intelligence agents said was Russian disinformation. Disregard that. So the FBI conspired to work with the social media platforms. The social media platforms then dutifully followed up and limited the reach, if not eliminated the reach of that story from the minds and and the eyes and the ears of voters. And subsequently, after the election, many voters were asked, had you known about the Hunter Biden laptop and the contents that implicate not just the son of the president, but the president himself, well, the the vice president, son of the vice president at the time, uh, but the vice president himself, would it have changed the vote? And a significant number of people in battleground states like Arizona and Michigan and Wisconsin and Georgia said, yes, it would have changed their votes. Donald Trump would have won going away in an electoral college victory with victories in those states. So the FBI told the platforms, don't let people see this. The platforms dutifully said, nope, don't worry about it, we won't. And then, of course, they continue to go further in the restrictions of what people can see and say as they continue to ban people who have different opinions and dissenting opinions, like me, as I just got off of another Facebook jail sentence uh, for simply posting uh, about Pfizer and uh, uh, the, the, the clinical studies that showed half of the pregnant women who took those uh, shots during the studies uh, were uh, uh, miscarried, ended up miscarrying. I posted that story because it was a credible story, and I got banned saying it violated the community standards. This is extraordinary when information and the flow of information is in the hands of one particular political ideology or one party of that same ideology. The Democrat Party runs the FBI. The Democrat Party runs the DOJ. The Democrat Party runs Facebook. It runs Twitter. It runs all of the social media platforms, probably except for Truth Social. And we're supposed to trust? We're supposed to trust the information we get from there when we only get one side of the story because they ban the other side of the story? 
It is a blatant violation of the First Amendment. It's a blatant attack on our rights as citizens to gather all of the information that we can and make up our own minds rather than them letting, uh, you know, making up our minds for us. Them deciding, letting them decide what we should see and what we shouldn't see and what we believe and what we don't believe about a candidate or about an issue in an upcoming election. It's a remarkable admission. Mark Zuckerberg admitted that, yes, he and Facebook did what Twitter did to a lesser degree in censoring this, but he says he did it on the, at the behest of the FBI, who didn't say specifically this laptop story, but warned them in advance, there is Russian disinformation coming, you should not allow people to see it. So that's a pretty astounding story. I welcome your thoughts at 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. Always Right Radio is right back on AM 1420, The Answer. So, one of the reasons um, why that story is so big is because of the FBI component in it. But the FBI telling Zuckerberg and his you know minions at Facebook that they should be on guard for this Russian disinformation that's coming in the form of this laptop, it doesn't absolve Facebook of their own responsibilities, particularly going forward. Because here we are now. And Facebook is continuing to do the same game, play the same game. The Republican side of the House Judiciary Committee, that's the committee whose ranking member is Jim Jordan. We talk to Jim Jordan every week. The Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee offered an 11-word rebuttal to Joe Biden's plan to cancel uh, the student, student loans, $10,000 per borrower for now, to those who make less than $125,000, you know the story by now. They responded with, a t- with an 11-word tweet, did the Republicans of the Judiciary Committee. House Judiciary GOP tweeted these 11 words. <clears throat> if you take out a loan, you pay it back. Period. End quote. That's it. That's, those are the 11 words. If you take out a loan, you pay it back period. Any profanity there? No. Any threats there? No. Anything that one would think violates a community standard? No. But guess what happened? What did Facebook do with that? I'm sorry, I said they tweeted. They posted this on Facebook. What did they, uh, what did Facebook do in response to that? They took it down. They took it down and censored it and posted your, uh, over top of it, your post goes against our community stand, standards, so only you can see it, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And I've been through it a million times. <clears throat> Not a million, but a lot. And I'm sitting here, like everybody else, wondering, how on earth can they justify censoring those words? If you take out a loan, you pay it back, period. Well, they flagged it. They took it down. There was a massive amount of justifiable, righteous outrage and indignation. Uh, people were livid, people who were conservatives in particular. Facebook relented. They put it back up. They even apologized and said, yeah, that shouldn't have been taken down. That doesn't uh, violate our community standards. And you think, well, at least they gave him a hope. No, that doesn't get it done. They blamed a glitch. 
they said that well it's a glitch in the algorithm the algorithm caught it and uh you know and flagged it and and then it was uh you know it was it was spiked but it was not you know uh it, but it was easy, an easy fix we put it back up that's garbage that's absolute garbage because the reality is when something like that happens, even if an algorithm catches it, all that does is flag it and sends it to the, the, the screen of one of the human beings that actually make the decisions on whether or not something should be spiked. So a human being at Facebook made that decision and spiked that 11-word post. If you take out a loan, you pay it back, period. No amount of apologizing fixes that. The fact of the matter is there are individual human beings, probably a manager above that human being, and maybe one more level above that, that have to double-check their work to say, yeah, you should get rid of that. Yeah, you should get rid of that. Yeah, you should get rid of that. It was a simple opinion. And it's not an opinion to say if you take out a loan, you should pay it back. It's, it's, uh, it should be accepted as a fact. But, but in today's day and age, because of the Brandon administration, call it an opinion. But nonetheless, Facebook continues to try to silence dissenting voices. This is what we have to fight. We can't fight any issues. We can't fight any political races, any campaigns. We cannot participate in the democratic process if our voices are constantly being silenced. This is so important. It's about more than just one post. It's about more than just one uh, uh, statement by, by Facebook. It's about more than even the FBI. It is so much bigger than all of this, and we have to fight it every step of the way. Peter Carson now joins me after the news, and he'll talk about that with us next, AM 1420. Reason in the age of unreason. Always right radio with Bob France and the answer. 938 and it is Friday. Yeah, forgot to do that to start the day. It's a great day because it's Friday. It's a better day because it's a cursing out day. It's not supposed to be a cursing out day on Fridays, but it is today. We have a special treat. Peter was uh, doing the job on Tuesday and Wednesday. We could not reach him at that particular point in time, but he made time to be with us today. And I'm so glad he did because there's a lot of things going on today that we need his opinion and we need his wisdom on. Peter, member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, columnist for NRO Online, which is National Review Online. Got very busy on that recently, a best-selling author as well. How are you, my friend? Bob, I'm doing great. It's Friday. You know, all is good on Friday. Yeah, it's supposed to be. So, Pete, there's a lot of ground to cover here. I'm just going to dive right in. We'll start with the Mar-a-Lago affidavit. Um, It's being released. It has to be released by noon today. I don't know if it's actually come out yet. I mean, uh, that's the deadline that was put forth by the judge. Do you have any expectation that that we, the people, will learn anything of note or of value from the release of this affidavit, which led to the warrant to search Mar- or not to search, well, yeah, to search and to raid Mar-a-Lago? Um, or do you think they're going to redact virtually every word that isn't and, of, or the? Uh, because I kind of feel like they want to keep everything under wraps so they can continue to make it appear as though Donald Trump, Trump did something criminal uh, and that this warrant was, well, warrantless, if you will, uh, based on the information in the affidavit. Will we find anything today? 
No, of course we won't. I, I think that it's going to be heavily redacted, obviously. And because it's heavily redacted, you know, there's not going to be a strong argument as to whether or not it was properly redacted. Um, now, you know, I'm not going to make any allegations about the judge. Everyone's heard about the, the magistrate and anything like that. You know, I, I, I suspect he's going to try to do his job the best he can, and you can draw your own conclusions from that, okay, from what I just said. Nonetheless, um, we're not going to learn anything because I, I agree with several commentators. I think uh, Dershowitz was one of them who said they what they're doing here is they took all the information from whom, whomever provided information to execute the affidavit and also from whatever they've already gleaned from Mar-a-Lago, and they've been prosecuting by slow leak. They have been leaking to the public precisely what it is that they want to be out there. This is right now a trial by leak, and they want to damage Trump sufficiently so that if it ever, and it, I, I doubt that anything would ever happen, but well, you never know. Uh, this is a continuation of impeachment. This is continue, the two impeachments. It's a continu- continuation of Russiagate, where we saw the same thing. You'd get these calculated leaks, most of which were, were completely false, but may have had some germination of truth somewhere there. And they're doing the same thing right now. Uh, they're, they're trying to damage Trump. They're trying to poison any potential jury pool. I don't think there's ever going to be one, but they would. Not that they'd have to even do that, because in D.C., if you had a jury convened for Trump or any of his associates in D.C., you know precisely what's going to happen. It's a 98% Democratic town. No one's going to get a fair trial. So that's what's going on here. We're not going to learn anything from the affidavit, but what we will hear are judicious, and I I use that term advisedly, leaks from DOJ, as they've been doing throughout the entire Trump uh, regnancy, the, the, the Trump presidency and thereafter. All right, Pete, last thing on the raid, because we have so many other things to get to. I wanted to get your reaction to Bill Barr's comments on this. Bill Bill Barr said he's, quote, pretty tired of the right's constant pandering to outrage, particularly as it pertains to the FBI raid. Now, we know that there is no love lost between the president and his former uh, AG. I, I think Bill Barr, to be 100% honest with you, was a very good AG. I thought he stepped in after the Sessions fiasco and did a phenomenal job. I think he's a noble man with, uh, you know, with, with almost always uh, the right intentions. But we do know that he clashed with President Trump. I think he got tired of defending President Trump on a number of cases and a no- number of uh, situations. But he said that the, quote, constant pandering coming from the right regarding the outrage uh, toward the FBI following the Mar-a-Lago raid is unjustified. He said to Brett Baer uh, that um, uh, basically we need to stop defending every single thing that, he, that President Trump does or has, does, has done. And that, um, uh, you know, the DOJ's handling of the investigation, uh, you know, said so the, the fallout from the Russia investigation created the conditions of the public automatically thinking the worst in the situation and also just judging the institution of the FBI as being the worst in the worst possible manner. So what do you make of Bill Barr essentially saying, hey, everybody, sit down and shut up about this? Yeah, I mean, look, I respect Bill Barr also. He's entitled to his opinion, but we're entitled to ours, too. And he just nailed why it is that we have a whole lot of skepticism about the FBI, because for several years, it appears that every judgment that the FBI could make related to Donald Trump went against Donald Trump. And not just that, that's, that's putting it very, very mildly. We have copious evidence now of multiple instances in which the FBI put not just a thumb on the scale, but they put their entire body on the scale. Uh, you know, this is, uh, this is what happens when an institution loses credibility. As we've discussed in the past, um, when 
we're talking about the FBI. We're not talking about every single agent. We're not even talking about every single middle-level bureaucrat. But we're talking about the fact that the institution has lost considerable amount of credibility when we see, again, you've got a James Comey who tried to manipulate Donald Trump and manipulate General Flynn to get them to, frankly, implicate themselves in something that never happened. Then you've got FBI, excuse me, FBI attorneys and others who falsified or lied to a FISA court in order, again, to damage Donald Trump. Then you have an unprecedented, you know, again, all respect to a bar, but in the greater than 200 years of this republic, we have never had a former president get raided. And some may say, well, that's because Trump is so horrible. Where's the horrible part about Trump, other than they don't like his personality? What has Trump ever done? Everything they ascribe to Trump <laughs> is a matter of projection. You, it's just it's truly astonishing it when is. you watch it. I ask this of people all the time when they, they are in an outrage about Trump, and I said, okay, what did he do to harm you and American interests? Oh, you know, and, and they bluster and bluster, and, and then they'll, they'll find some little thing that they got from MSNBC, which you can pick apart because it's completely false. Incredible. But nonetheless, this is one of the reasons why we have... It, we're no longer giving the FBI the benefit of the doubt. And again, it doesn't apply to every single FBI agent. But we're generally talking about, when we talk about institutions, what the policies are and those who control from the top. And we have seen just from Comey to Ray to Strzok to Smith to Pay, you, you name it. You cannot, at this point, automatically assume that what the FBI does is on the up and up. It pains well, me to say that. Well, it, it it does me too, uh, although less and less so every time we find out something new. And we do. We continue to find out ever since, well, maybe even before, but 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 we'll we'll just go back as you pointed out <clears throat> To 2016, when the FBI contributed to the, uh, you know, getting the phony FISA warrant uh, from the court, rather the, uh, the 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 warrant from the FISA court to to spy on on the Trump campaign and then on the Trump presidency, even after the election was over and after he was inaugurated, uh, and, and we have seen countless numbers of examples of the FBI going after American citizens, calling them domestic terrorists, colluding and co- uh, collaborating with the National School Board Association, the Biden administration, and so forth. And now let me bring us current to the to the most recent one. I, I opened the show today saying this is a bombshell. It is a blockbuster, and I truly believe that it is. Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, in an interview with Joe Rogan, admitted and declared that he and his platform, along with other social media platforms, were told by the FBI to watch out for Russian disinformation on the way in the form of this uh, this Hunter Biden laptop leading up to the 2020 election. And as such, uh, uh, Zuckerberg described his, you know, respect for the FBI, you know, guiding his hand here, uh, did indeed. They, they didn't go as far as Twitter did. Twitter shut everything down, including, um, uh, closing the account temporarily of the New York Post, which was the only media outlet reporting on the laptop and the potential criminal activity of not just Hunter, but Joe Biden contained therein. But Facebook limited its reach, limited its distributorship. They said it could be shared individually, privately, but it absolutely did diminish the number of people who could see it in a meaningful way, thereby, you know, putting the... Uh, you know, putting the cap on our belief that the FBI interfered with the 2020 election. The FBI, by telling these platforms to do this, literally uh, covered up 
verifiable information that voters might have used to make a different decision on their votes in the 2020 election, Pete. So you, you talk about the FBI not earning the benefit of the doubt. Every single time they're in the news, it's it's creating more doubt as to their uh, their trust, you know, the, the, the tr- their trustworthiness. Yeah, not much to add uh, to what you just said other than, you know, this goes beyond merely cover-up. They were really merely covering up. They were actively trying to spread and the you know, word of the day these times on the progressive side is disinformation. Right. They're the ones who are engaged in active disinformation because they had had the laptop for more than a year, they, and they still have it. They had the laptop for more than a year. They knew precisely what was on it. They knew the multiple felonies that were revealed on it. Yet they went ahead along with, let's not forget, 50 so-called intelligence professionals who signed a letter to mislead the public, saying that this has all the earmarks of Russian disinformation, when they had absolutely no information whatsoever to suggest that, and any information that was publicly available suggested just the opposite. The media, I agree with you, this is blockbuster on steroids. It's incredible what's happening. We have an instrumentality of the federal government, the most powerful law enforcement agency in the world, that put... not just a thumb on the scale, but put their entire butts on the scale in favor of one candidate. Polling shows, several polls showed, in, in fact, even, almost immediately after the election, yep. polling shows that 30 to 40 percent of Biden voters, had they known, by the way, almost 90 percent, 95 percent, I think it was, of Biden voters had absolutely no clue about the laptop because the media assiduously avoided it, thanks to the FBI, and, and so did um, uh, you know, the Facebooks and Twitters, uh, but 30 to 45, or I'm sorry, I think it was 35 to 40 percent of Biden voters would have changed their vote had they known about the laptop. That would have made a landslide for Trump. This changed unequivocally, inarguably, the outcome of the election. And those 50 intelligence professionals have yet to issue a retraction or a mea culpa. They got the job done, and because the media won't cover it, half of our fellow citizens are either oblivious to it, still believe the nonsense about the disinformation, and marching forward to the next next election, they're going along with Biden's proclamation that, uh, you know, the biggest threat to America are these ultra-maga types. Well, I'm one of them. I guess I'm a threat to America. I thought I was a law-abiding American who paid my taxes, did everything I could to support the country in which I love, and yet I'm being called, now now just not deplorable, as Hillary would say, but I'm a threat to the republic. I'm treacherous. I got, Truly astonishing. I got bad news for you. What's happened is, what's happened is, there are, no, there are not many real Republicans anymore. By the way, your sitting governor, he's a Republican you can deal with. We disagree. No, no, I'm serious. But at least he's within the mainstream of the Republican Party. I respect conservative Republicans. I don't respect these MAGA Republicans. There it is. Bad news. Uncle Joe doesn't respect you, Peter Kirsten. Well, yeah, well, the feeling's mutual. In fact, uh, and it's not even mutual because I disrespect him a lot more than he would ever disrespect me. I know I've had interactions with him, and I think I've told you. I started having interactions with him 25 years ago when I used to you know, appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee on a regular basis. And I was telling people then, and I think I told you and I told your audience, before he started showing obvious signs of cognitive decline, he was already, I remember coming back to my office once and saying to people, this may, you know, the, the famous line from, I think it's, um, ruthless people. This may very well be the dumbest human being on the face of the earth. Now, I said that tongue-in-cheek, but he was extraordinarily obtuse. 
and now he's got cognitive decline on top of it. Let's put that aside for the moment. I just want to issue pejoratives against this guy. I mean, that's fine. That's that's a turkey shoot. But the fact the fact is that we have an entire segment of the population that is being exhorted by the highest levels of the Democratic Party to hate another segment, another half of the American population. Regardless of what you think, I wouldn't want a Trump or a DeSantis or anyone else to say about Democrats that these people are treacherous, horrible, they're fascist, as you know, Biden claims we're fascist, and you think about the elements of fascism, who, to whom does that most closely apply? Let's just take the most recent example. Just with a stroke of a pen saying, you know what, I'm going to forgive loan debt without any legislative underpinning whatsoever. Does someone think that might be the definition of fascism? No, 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 of course not, because the left likes it. Whatever the left proclaims something to be, their manipulation of the language is allowed to stand by the media and our betters. We well, and, and, and are, in fact, those who oppose that uh, that uh, that that stroke of the pen, they're the fascists. Like you said, it's projection from the very beginning. But Pete, I got to get a time out here. But I just want to say, you know, I give you have to give him at least credit for this. You know, you called him the dumbest man uh, that you've ever met, and and I think that's a. Uh, that is very, very strong. At least he didn't just stand there and accept that. He went ahead and did something about it and hired Kamala Harris. So, so I mean, that, that's a good way. He, he dealt with this problem. He dealt with this problem. And then he hired Kareem Jean-Pierre. So he really dealt with this problem there by proving he's not the dumbest man that you've ever met or the dumbest man in any room into which he walks. He, uh, he handled that expertly. We'll be right back. Okay, 9.56, we continue with Peter Kersenow, who will continue with us after the top of the hour as well. So, Pete, we've got time after that to talk about uh, the left's new attempt to blame Trump for the vaccines that they championed uh, up until just recently. Uh, we'll also talk about the standing federal army being built against Americans, and we'll talk about medical schools and race. Uh, but just super quick to put a cap on the Mar-a-Lago discussion for the moment. Um, some constitutional scholars and legal experts have suggested that President Trump's claim that he declassified everything that he took with him on his way out the door might not be as crazy as it sounds, that he might have actually had some legal footing on which to do that, only the president while he is still president. He can't do it when he's, you know, in his post-presidency, but while he's still president, he can do that. Others say, no way, he's got to go through a bunch of channels to declassify things that has to be done in writing. He can't just say, uh, voila, I say these are now all declassified. What say you, with your knowledge of, uh, you know, of the law and of the Constitution? Can he do that? Right. I, I do think he can do it simply. He, he doesn't have to do take any overt act, because let's look at this from a 30,000-foot level. Mm-hmm. The executive is the president. It's not some bureaucrat in some agency or, or you know, some uh, function, functionary that works for him in the White House. He is the executive. And what he does is an executive action that speaks for itself under the Constitution. So, as the executive and someone who is allowed unilaterally to declassify or classify, either by overt act or or his uh, pronouncement, he has declassified. You can glean from his action that, for example, he would take certain documents with him, that those are presumed to be declassified. That's why he would do it. 
And I tend to agree with, not, I don't tend to agree, I think Mark Levin had the best take on this, which is pretty much what I've just said, uh, but he embellished it even, even more. Just take a look at the relevant statutes, like the Presidential Records Act and other statutes under which you know he's being scrutinized right now, and those statutes do nothing to compromise a president's ability to classify or declassify now. The moment he is out of office, that stops. He can't then start to manipulate things and say something is classified or declassified, or by his actions, classify or declassify. But the presumption always is that if he did something that would suggest a document's been declassified, it is, in fact, declassified. That's why we asked you, Peter Kersenow, and I appreciate that very much. Appreciate the brevity as well. It's 9.59. We'll take our time out here for news. We'll come back and continue with a couple of other important issues with Kersenow at Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob Franz on AM 1420. The answer. Onward into hour number two, now nine minutes past ten o'clock on this Friday. Edition of Always Right Radio. Don't forget to check the webpage, alwaysright.us, alwaysright.us. New stories there, the top stories of the day, interviews that we have done in the last few days, all there, links to the articles we have discussed with our guests, all available for you at alwaysright.us. That's alwaysright.us. We continue now with our good friend Peter Kersenow, direct from the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Finally on the ground after being in the air most of the course of the last week. Um, doing a lot of writing, right, Pete? I try to do a little bit. You know, I don't want to waste time while I'm sitting in an airplane. I, I have to admit, the last uh, I was flying on Tuesday, I believe it was, back from Denver, late at night, and uh, there was a very, very nice um, elderly lady, which kind of describes the, the opposite of, of me in terms of, uh, at least in terms of sex, but uh, just uh, was seated uh I was in the window seat, she's in the aisle seat, and there was nobody between us. And at one point, I feel her touch my arm, and I look over at her, and she said, Are you all right? (laughs) I think I need a little bit of sleep. I really do. Wow. Yeah, well, I can imagine. And, you know, why don't you sleep on those flights, for crying out loud? Instead, you got the laptop out, and you're there just busy banging out articles for National Review Online. Going going back to Larry, we've got a country to save, you know. So I think everyone, in my little way, you know, we have brave men and women who put their lives on the line every single day from cops to firefighters, to the military, and all I've got is a pen or a keyboard, and uh, so I try to do my part. Am I allowed to bring this up, uh, Pete? Our mutual friend, Larry Elder, um, was recently spotted at an event in Iowa. Um, Birdies have whispered to me that that's not insignificant. Yeah, I have no inside information. I haven't communicated with Larry about that. Um, every once in a while, he'll he'll you know tease me with something or other. I haven't heard a thing about that, but I've heard others speculate that you know maybe Larry's going to make a. I think even Tucker may have speculated Larry might make a presidential run. Okay. Um, who knows, Larry? Larry's I didn't want to say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, he's a very smart and energetic guy, and uh, I think that uh, look, I think more Larry Elder is a good thing. And, you know, that phrase, that catchphrase he used for years and years and years on the radio, um, you know what? It's time to put it into action. 
You know, if we've got a country to save and you believe you have the prescription to save it, run for it and do it. So if he's exploring, uh, God bless him. I, I, I just, I love the idea. I love what he did to try to, uh, uh, to save California from itself. And, uh, and he, and he, and he gave it a heck of a good run for crying out loud. I hope that is something that maybe, uh, does come to fruition. Now, having said all of that, let's get back to the issues at hand. We don't have a ton of time here. So Pete, this is, this is an astounding development. As it pertains to the COVID-19 profit shots that I won't call vaccines. They call them vaccines, but we understand. Those were created in record time under Donald Trump. The message from the American left when they were released under um, uh, emergency authorized use by the FDA was, if these have Trump's fingerprints on them, I don't want them. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, everybody said, nope, I'm not taking it. They advised other people to use extreme caution when deciding whether or not you want to take these vaccines. Then Joe Biden becomes president. January 20th, 2021, and already over a million shots have been delivered into a million different arms. But he says, there's no vaccine when I got here. No, there was no vaccine. But then immediately he started mandating the very same vaccines he told everybody not to uh, trust. And said he, he himself said, are you going to put your arm out there and roll up your sleeve for these things? I'm not. I'm not going to be the first one. And then he mandated them for, for everybody and declared them to be, because he's president now, you see, safe and effective. Well, now here we are a year and a half after his inauguration, and it is proving, uh, becoming proven that they are not safe and effective. From the effective standpoint, he's been jabbed four times, got COVID twice in two weeks. His wife got jabbed four times. She's got COVID now for the second time in two weeks. Those are just two little anecdotes, but, but as we know, it has been proven they do not inoculate you against infection from COVID-19. So therefore, they are not truly vaccines and they are not effective. From a safety standpoint, now we are starting to see so many cases of adverse event reactions to formerly healthy people who took these jabs either mandatorily by the government or by Biden himself or uh, on on of the belief that the government was telling them the truth when they said they were safe and effective and now it's back to these are Trump's vaccines. So they were Trump's vaccines, and they couldn't be trusted before Biden became president. Then Biden became president, and they're my vaccines. I delivered these to the American people. I'm saving lives. And now that they're being viewed in a very negative light by a lot of people, including a lot of scientists, hey, don't blame me. These are Trump's vaccines. He went too fast. He didn't give them enough time to be tested. Do I have that right, and are we supposed to believe this now? Yeah, you've you've got it right, and but it shouldn't be a surprise, and I know it's not a surprise to you. Um, For the longest time, they were blaming Trump for not moving fast enough, when in fact Trump was moving very fast. Warp speed, right? The entire administration was exactly right. And then what they did is, and there's some evidence that maybe there was an effort to kind of slow down the rollout of the vaccine until, um, at least in mass, until uh, after the election so that Trump wouldn't get any kind of kudos for that or any any points for that in the election. And then, as you indicated, right away, they started mandating everything in the world. Everyone knows it was the left who was saying, look, this is a big deal. We've got to get as many vaccines into arms as possible. And, you know, most of the skepticism, let's let's face it, came from libertarians and conservatives. And many of those folks, and I, I was engaged in many of them, uh, with many of them, you know, they wanted to get either religious exemptions or some other kind of exemptions. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs. Again, not universally on the, on the, uh, on the right or libertarians, right. but a large number of them. And 
I think gradually you started seeing little indices of the fact that the Democrats and the progressives generally were getting a little nervous when so many people who got the jab nonetheless got COVID, got it multiple times, and then there were ancillary, pretty dire effects for a large cohort of individuals, you know, heart attacks and so forth. And you started to see a shift in the media, which was predictable that, uh-oh, we were the ones who were mandating everything from shots to masks and getting people fired for not doing so. But now it turns out that all of those people who are just very reasonably looking out for their own interests and trying to make an independent adult judgment as to whether or not they should get vaccines and nonetheless may have lost their jobs, a lot in the military and various service sectors, uh, they, they started to see this and they said, we better walk away from this quietly and make it appear as if we were always on the side of prudent use at best of vaccines <laughs> and blame everything on Trump. That's And, and they know, and, and this is why I continue, and I know your audience is sick of this, but every chance I get, I rail against the corrupt media because the media is not reporting unvarnished facts. They are carrying the water for the progressive left. I'm, I'm not, when I say media, again, Everyone understands I'm not painting with a broad brush, but a significantly large brush. Better believe it. Uh, so they're going out there and playing games with the progressives on this, allowing them to change history like, uh, like this so that when the election comes around, uh, they can blame Trump if he runs again. Look, they're pulling out all the stops. Let's face it. They are fearful of another Trump presidency because this time Trump will have had the experience of the first presidency. He's not going to be as, quote unquote, naive as he was before about the extent of the deep state. And he's going to take action. And it's an action that I think the majority of people, maybe not the progressive left because they control the administrative state. Many of them are employed in the administrative state. But I think Trump will finally take the action, and I think DeSantis would too, to diminish the power of the unelected branch of government, the administrative state, and to root out those folks in various administrative agencies to wherever they are, get them out of there, whether it be in the FBI, the CIA, State Department, you name it, and all the other functionaries there. That's imperative. We have this huge bureaucracy. Now, Trump called it the deep state, and everyone you know is talking about conspiracy theories. It goes beyond conspiracy. You don't have to be concerned about conspiracy. You've got this model, this leviathan, that is issuing regulations with the force of law. They're doing most of the legislating, or what I mean by that, they're the ones who are issuing edicts out there that are controlling us more so than the legislature does. The Congress is doing very little. They've abdicated their responsibility and have given it over to the administrative state. And there are you know, many cases along these lines, and it's been rolled back a little bit. But nonetheless, Trump and others need to go in there and make sure that we are being governed as a free people and not a top-down imposition of the government, and that included the CDC. So uh, there's a lot of work to be done, and I think the change in this, um, the mantra with respect to the vaccine is a result of the Democrats and the progressives and the media, but I repeat myself, understanding that they have got some something to answer for here. This was not an unalloyed good, the vaccine, that is. Right. And um, they got to blame Trump for it because, my goodness, he's on a roll right now. The polls seem to suggest that he got a you know a fairly sizable bump after Mar-a-Lago. And just, the, let's face it, we have 
crime, record crime increases, record illegal immigration, record inflation. Well, I want to stay on this. I want to stay on this. Debacle. Yeah, I want to stay on this, Pete. I don't want to get into those other things at the moment here. This was uh, February 11th. 2021, so literally uh, a month after, less than a month after he was inaugurated. We're on track to surpass the goal I set on day one. When I was sworn in, I indicated, just before I swore in, I indicated that my hope was to administer 100 million shots in the first 100 days of our term. I believe we'll not only reach that, but we'll break that. So this guy tried to take credit for Operation Warp Speed. This statement was made behind a mask, by the way, in case you can tell from the muffler. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a time when he, when he was saying when he took office there were no vaccines available. There were no vaccines available, but he's going to get 100 million shots and 100 million arms. So he's bragging about the availability of 100 million shots that he and they are now, a year and a half later, saying, those are no good. Those are no good because Trump rushed them. Tr- Trump rushed them way too much. He got those shots. Uh, Pete, I, I, and, and you just gave a lot of very, very great uh, uh, concrete examples of the hypocrisy of all of this, but I want everyone in America to know this that the shots that they are now saying were no good because of Trump, he he mandated them. He mandated them for all federal employees, military members, contracted employees of federal uh, uh, federal contracts, and so forth. So he is the one who made the... If these shots were questionable in any way, they could have gone out there and said, we think they're safe and effective. We hope they're safe and effective. We didn't do the long-term studies because we're in a rush here. So, you know, you have your choice about whether or not you want to take these. Pete, he said, take them or lose your jobs. Right. So, so to right, pin this now on Trump and say, you know, these weren't tested well enough. They rushed through, through this, uh, through these trials and, and got that emergency use authorization too fast. They were bragging about having those shots available, uh, literally, like I said, less than a month in, uh, and then claiming he, he being Biden was responsible for them. So, yeah, the mantra was, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. They kept repeating that over and over and over uh-huh. again. He kept bragging about all the shots he got, all the people who lost their jobs as a result of the fact that they had mandates that were from regressives. You, you didn't see this in red states or maybe, you know, here and there, but this was almost over, almost universally from the left Biden's party, if not Biden himself. And now when they see that, number one, the efficacy of the vaccine is not what they touted because they, again, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. You get a vaccine, no problems. You he know? was saying that this uh, year, earlier this year, right, he was still right. making that claim. Yeah, and many of us were skeptical about it, and we were called, you know, science deniers and all kinds of other, you know, uh, things. But nonetheless, you know, those who took a sober approach, um, you know, we're not going to forget. And the media is going to try their best to do the heavy lift to protect Biden when they were the ones who were spreading much of the hagiography with respect to the vaccine and Biden. Uh, You know, this is um, par for the course, not unexpected. I think many of your uh, uh, listeners probably could have predicted this. But again, this goes to the fact that you talk about they're calling us fascists. Well, they control every single institution in the country, every single institution. And and we have to remember... The, the people who were guiding all of these decisions were people like, um, well, I won't say his name. I'll let you determine his name from this. And I'm just sick of seeing him. I know he says he's going to retire. Someone needs to grab that little elf and chuck him across the potomac. <laughs> grab that little elf and chuck him across the potomac. I think you know who, who he was science? talking about. 
Chuck <laughs> science, science itself. Yes, yes. Chuck science across the Potomac. Pete, let me take our last time out here at ten twenty three. I want to come back and ask you about the loans. I want to time on the uh, medical story about race. We'll get into that another day. But I want to ask you about the loans, about the constitutionality of them, and about the wisdom of them as well. Uh, back with Kirsten now after this. Always Right Radio. Okay, 1026. Pete, I've only got four minutes, but I'll give you five, and I'll give you free reign to take the uh, issue of the student loan debt relief being promised by Joe Biden. going to cost American taxpayers between 300 and $500 billion to bail out these students who took these loans. Take it in any direction you wish. Well, the first one is that this is a giant moral hazard, meaning that if you start to go down this path, and we've already gone down this path in a number of arenas, but when you do something like this, it has a number of domino effects. When you start to forgive loans of people who, you know, they went in with the expectation of having to pay them off, and now they're forgiven, it's going to have a domino effect. There, there's People are going to be having their hands out for other things, but more importantly is a number of people have made this point, and it's, it's not, you know, I'm not coming up with anything that is new. And that is that you have a lot of people who worked hard and didn't go to college, didn't take out loans, did the right thing, uh, or if they did go to college, they paid off the loans, um, or they, they husbanded their money so they could pay as they went, and they look like idiots now, or at least they feel as if they're idiots. There's that famous video of somebody confronting uh, Elizabeth Warren along those lines, saying he had deferred vac- vacations, he had saved his money, and this other guy went out and bought new cars and everything else, and now, boom, he looks like, meaning the first guy looks like a sucker. And there's so many people like that, and what kind of a message does that send to young people? You, know, you don't ob- uh, uh, satisfy your obligations, and there are going to be more defaults as a result. What you'll see with respect to other loans, regardless of whether they're education, they could be bank loans for any other reason, they're going to be more defaults, because people are, first of all, they're going to be frustrated by the fact that they're not being afforded the same opportunity. But also, there's going to be kind of an inherent expectation that at some point, I'm not obligated to discharge my obligations. That is a horrible moral hazard and message to be sent. And I think it's a thumb in the, in the eye of almost every hardworking, honest, law-abiding American. Uh, and it also privileges the wealthier people in the country. You know, all those folks who went to the Harvards and stuff, why do they need loan forgiveness? You know, comport yourself in a way where you can discharge your debts. Uh, the other thing about it is whether or not this is indeed lawful. And I've got significant reservations as to whether the president with a phone and a pen can simply discharge something that's, you know, estimated to be anywhere from 300 to 500 billion dollars, maybe more in debt in contractual obligations. How does he do that? Where's the legislative authority? Talk about fascism. Is he a king? Is he a dictator? He can simply uh, abrogate almost any obligation by any institution to the benefit of his constituents or as a payout to garner votes. Truly extraordinary. Where does that come from? You know, there's a case, you don't have to go back this far, but Youngstown Sheet and Tube. Anybody in your listening audience who, you know, probably went to college knows that case where uh, during the midst of the Korean War, Truman was concerned about a strike, steel strike, you know, hamstring our operations to our, our, our ability to wage that war. Um, you know, and he was going to uh, uh, deny that. And 
the Supreme Court said, hey, wait a minute, there's no statutory underpinning for this. You can't simply act as, they didn't say this, but you can't simply act as a king. There has to be a legislative underpinning. And what they're trying to do in this case is, well, there's an emergency. There's a COVID emergency. Well, you know, they're not acting as if there's a COVID emergency when it comes to the border or for, for other things. They're, they're allowing people to come in and, you know, uh, Biden at any given moment in time declares it either an emergency or there's no big deal. He's conquered it. So there's, there's nothing explicit that permits this, it's going to be litigated. Whether or not he's ultimately vindicated, I don't know. I think it's 95% likely that if it is litigated, it gets struck down, or his attempt uh, to do this gets struck down. But from a political perspective, he, he looks at it as, I'm satisfying the most radical elements of my party. I am buying votes, and that's, let's make no mistake, at the advent of the midterm elections, this is precisely what's going on, and the inflation cycle and everything else be damned. Um, I hear the music coming on. And, and at the end of the day, three, four years from now, if a court finally says he didn't have the authority to do it, guess what? Too bad. I got what I needed in the short term. Yeah, and he has done that on a number of other occasions with a number of other issues as well. And you're right. You do hear the music coming on, and that music is perfect. It's free ride. Because uh, that is exactly <laughs> right. That's Johnny. Johnny is an expert at this. Uh, Peter Kersenow, as are you. Thank you, my friend. We only scratched the surface today. I'll talk to you again on Tuesday, unless you're still in Denver. You let me know, and we'll uh, we'll get to the rest of these issues. Thank you, Pete. Good weekend, Bob. Bye. You too, sir. 1031. We're going to take a time out for news. We're going to come back. I've got more commentary coming your way, this time from former Ohio State Representative Christina Hagan. She'll join us next. Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. Informed among the uninformed. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Rolling onward on this Friday edition of Always Right Radio. Don't forget to check the website, alwaysright.us. Um, thanks to Peter Kirsten, our terrific stuff, as always. We talked a little bit about the FBI. We talked a little bit about the loan situation. We're going to talk about both those things and maybe a little bit more now. With our good friend Christina Hagan. She is a former Ohio State representative, member of the Ohio Elections Commission as well, and our regular Friday commentator on all things news in Northeast Ohio and sometimes beyond. Christina, good morning. Good to have you back. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So, Christina Hagan, we're going to start with, um, you know, you and I are very like-minded when it comes to law enforcement. I know Peter Kersenow is, too, and I think this is hard for a lot of us to be critical of a law enforcement agency to the level that we are. Um, I have always given law enforcement the benefit of the doubt until there is a reason not to, and when there's not, then I am appropriately critical. Um, But when it comes to the FBI and the federal law enforcement, they have used and abused every benefit of the doubt that I think I would set aside for them. Over the course of the last few years, they have proven to be more weaponized and more interested in carrying out political agendas for uh, certain political leaders uh, than they are carrying out the law, that they are you know, doing investigations to protect and preserve the country for the American people. And because of some of those things, and that would include the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago most recently, and now this acknowledgement from the CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, that the FBI came to them in the fall 
of 2020, right before the election, and said, you know, there's going to be this drop of Russian disinformation that's coming. Please do your best to disregard it and do not allow it to be uh, to be used, uh, to be shared, to be read, etc., on your platform. And this disinformation, of course, that they referred to uh, as the Hunter Biden laptop. The Hunter Biden laptop that contained all kinds of very dangerous uh, and, um, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, Incriminating, I guess. Incriminating information about both Hunter and his father, former Vice President Joe Biden. They didn't want that stuff being seen. Now, this is directly putting an FBI thumb on the scale of of, of a presidential election. So how do you feel about when you hear these kinds of things, knowing what a strong supporter of law and order and law enforcement that you are, too? Well, I think the fact that I and you are immensely strong supporters of law and law enforcement means that any violation of the First Amendment, especially coming from one of the most powerful domestic government agencies in our country, demands um, at, at minimal a disbanding, a reorganization of that entity, knowing that such massive, massive fraudulent activity has taken place. I mean, three weeks prior to one of the most important elections of my entire lifetime for the FBI to weigh in and put their thumb on the scale um, with some of the largest uh, ways that American, the American public gets information prior to an election for them to tell Twitter and Facebook and all of their cronies that this uh, may very well be Russian disinformation. Um, this absolutely impacted the outcome of the election. If we think for one minute that this type of vital information was available um, about the Trump family, that it wouldn't have been on the computer screen of every American in the country and pushed through every media channel, uh, we're insane. So this is 100% interference from our own government. This isn't the type of country that we want to live in, nor should we permit um, to continue to operate this way. This is absolutely disturbing on every level, but... It's been shown to us um, time and time again over the last several weeks um, what we felt in our gut and knew to be true about the interference, about the corruption, um, just keeps echoing and unveiling itself. I mean, for Mark Zuckerberg uh, to be delivering this information, I mean, it's shocking, um, yeah. but I think it's, it's just the truth. It's reality. This is, this is where we are in America. This is the type of allegiance. Um, and behind-the-scenes disruption of the election that has taken place and will continue to take place if we don't have a serious disbanding of this um, government entity, and quite frankly, all government entities. There isn't any federal government entity that isn't pumping out correct um, information to indoctrinate the public and to have them move in the socialist, communist direction that this um, those that are in power wish to move them in. I mean, they're using every channel to undermine our democracy every step of the way, every day. Christina, a follow-up question. Um, I found myself shifting in my seat here as I listened to you use the words, um, uh, what word did you use? Not defund, uh, uh, but to uh, reorganize. How did you describe what should be done to the FBI? Major disbanding and reorganization. Disbanding, thank you. Uh, Let let me finish the, the question because when I heard you say disbanding it, I was immediately reminded what the left would say when you know over the course of the last two three years when they say they want to defund police they want to defund and reimagine policing. Well, now this is a federal police force. That's what the FBI is essentially. So we're talking about disbanding it and reorganizing it. It sounds like 
defund and reimagine what the left wants to do to policing. Uh, I know that's not what you mean to say, but that's how they're going to hear it, because that's what I heard, and I shifted a little bit in my own seat. So can you explain what you mean by disbanding the FBI and reorganizing it? Yeah, the difference is to restore their original intent. I mean, they've clearly become politically weaponized at this point to execute on the mission of some American elitist leaders in power um, to undermine our democracy and to attack Americans. They're using the FBI. Again, you know, windbreakers, we've talked about a blue windbreakers going after the average American parent for disagreeing with what's being taught in their child's classroom or the covering up of sex scandals that victimize children and minors and our education system. This is not the purpose or intent of the FBI. Um, it's clearly been undermined, and there needs to be serious reconsideration of how we allow them to operate moving forward if this is how they're executing things currently. I don't think there's anything wrong with understanding what's gone wrong and putting controls in place that return them to their original intent. And, I mean, we should be doing this in every agency, no matter the weight or importance, but especially for the most powerful domestic agency in this country, one that has the authority to knock down your or my door at any point in time. Because if they're coming after President Trump, if they're coming after a president of the United States and they do not have the authority, it's politically motivated, then what stops them from coming after any and all Americans? I mean, the fact that they've enlisted the IRS agents that they are enlisting, the fact that they're moving by executive order, there is no recognition of constitutionality or the law at this point. So we need to do everything that we can to protect ourselves as the American citizenry from a corrupt government. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear that. That's what I wanted to hear, and I knew that's what you meant. I just wanted to hear you put it into those words so people can understand that. It is, you know, when when an agency has gone, uh, you know, political and when it has been corrupted from its original mission, it does need to be reorganized. It needs to be put back on its correct track, and I think that is a fair thing to say. Now, Having said all of that, let's uh, shift gears. Speaking of legal or illegal activities, it's still unclear as to whether or not it's constitutional for Joe Biden to do what he just did. Um, so I want to give you kind of free reign in the same way that I did Peter Kirstenau, because there's so many elements, fundamental fairness, constitutionality, uh, uh, the effect on the economy, the effect on inflation, all of these things as it pertains to the student loan debt forgiveness the $10,000 per student. There are so many different angles to take there. What's yours? What was your first response when you heard this? And maybe you give us your second upon some reflection over the last two days. Yeah, I think my, my first response is as it has been for the last several months, last 18 months, just utter disgust with the inability to have any economic um, sense whatsoever. I mean, I'm looking at the debt clock as we speak. 30 trillion, moving it to 31 trillion and counting by the second. Um, I remember when we used to say $22 trillion in debt and be alarmed as a country. The financial literacy is absolutely eroded in this country to the extent that we don't even talk about billions of dollars within the week's time being sent to Ukraine because it's such chunk change in comparison to the amount of money that this presidency is doling out in order to uh, falsely purchase votes from their voters. Um, I think about how hard I and my husband and many in our family have worked to pay down tuition debt um, that was earned by us, purchased by us, decided by us, choices that we made to advance our future. And it's not just the people that are going to have to pay for this that didn't make the purchase, that didn't sign the line. Um, It's not just 
the hardworking class of people like my brothers that are plumbers and firefighters who didn't choose for a four-year degree or a doctorate. And mostly these are even higher higher education. So we're having the working class pay for the upper class debt. Um, it's not just all of that. It's the transference of this debt to every American, you know, to pay off a $10,000 debt, but to put a $2,000 tab on every American's plate is simply socialism. We've moved from a point where there was a time where you took pride and you had work ethic and you earned something and you made decisions that were costly that might advance you later. And it not only degrades the dollar and it <laughs> further inflates things like food that are the highest they've been since 1974. So every American's going to pay by ways of further increased inflation in a time where inflation is unbearable. Um, but I think about just this national defense spending alone. I mean, this, this expenditure by Joe Biden, which has zero constitutional authority to do this and has been stated by both former Obama officials and Pelosi, they have both on camera said that he does not have this authority. The DOE, Department of Education themselves, have stated that he has no statutory authority to do this. Yet here he is signing this money. I don't even know how they're functioning, let alone how we're accepting as Americans. There's just there's no no positive conscience in any of this decision-making other than they want to undermine election integrity further and purchase votes. That is it. That, that is, is all, and it's going to cost us greatly. Yeah, I think, you know, that is it. And, and, and just to the, to the fairness factor again, I told this story the other day when, you know, this was coming down. You know, my daughter is going to graduate from Hillsdale this coming May um, with no debt. Um, and that's because she earned scholarships. She earned a ton of scholarships. And when I say earned, Christina, I mean earned. And I mean she Work spent countless numbers of hours um, where other kids were at parties or other kids were at this event or that event. She was putting in the extra time to make sure that a B paper was an A paper, to make sure that a B test was an A test, to the point where she knew what she was going to do. And she knew it was going to cost a lot of money to get to the school she wanted to get to. She knew all of these things, and she knew she didn't want it, particularly because of her postgraduate plans, which are law school, she knows there's going to be debt involved there. She wanted to make sure she got her undergraduate degree without leaving with a bunch of debt. Now, those sacrifices were made and accomplished, and, and, and God bless her for it. But what does this say to kids like that? Um, maybe who are on their way up, who are going into their high school years, who think the same thing, and they think, you know, if I don't get the scholarship, it's no big deal. If I graduate with a few thousand in debt, I don't have to pay it anyway. I think I'll go and uh, you know, and, and relax and, and go to the party after all. Um, it's telling kids who work their tails off, you did it for nothing, suckers. You could graduate with no debt, just like the rest of us. All you got to do, you know, again, is, is uh, you know, make sure you don't make over $125,000 a year and you get it, uh, you're going to get it erased the way we did. I find that to be just so disconcerting to say that they are disincentivizing achievement and, uh, and, and telling everybody, you know what, you get off with the same scot-free uh, situation that people who work their tails off do. And worse, there is zero intention on any front to actually hold the institutions accountable that have allowed for this unparalleled inflation of a cost and service in higher education to take place. It shouldn't be the way it is, but because it, like many things, are floated by the government and subsidized by the government, uh, they're administratively bloated on every front, and they continue to charge students ridiculous fees for what could be done at more economical cost. 
um, which wouldn't then have to be bailed out by a president of the United States that's desperate for approval and desperate for his voters to come through for him. Um, as you mentioned, many of us work two to three jobs, uh, constantly endured unbearable levels of stress to do what we knew in our heart and our minds was right to pay down a debt that we personally took on. Bob, I waited tables until I was 37 weeks pregnant with my firstborn child while serving in the legislature. Every weekend, I would go and work a second job. I was dog-tired, but I knew that I had taken on the opportunity and the cost of a private education. And, you know, it's one of those things where I always will say I should have listened to my father, and when you're young, you don't, but I thought I needed a private education. Um, he said, you know, consider community college, consider this, and I was the first in my family to earn a college degree, and I felt that it was important to have a Christian education, and that's what I wanted, and that's what I was going to pay for. And, boy, I did pay for it. And now to think that that degree that I, that I not only earned but purchased will now be degraded. The value of that diploma now means less because it's been bailed out by the federal government. So now the next level of earning of achievement will be necessary. So I already felt like the the first college degree, the bachelor's degree, has become much like the high school diploma. It's necessary for even entry in many cases of seeking a job, although it doesn't necessarily qualify you or disqualify you to be prepared to do any functional job in the United States. And now the same is true, that college degree will mean less than the high school diploma. You will need your doctorate or further degree. And all of it will be contingent on the government purchasing that for you and being the parent of you. And everything will continue to be diminished in value and effort to the point where people will just stop putting in the time to do something great. Um, it's disturbing, it's unsettling, and it's unfortunate that this is where we have arrived in the United States of America. I completely concur. It really is. It's it's very unfortunate. It's very unfair. And I hope, uh, well, let's just hope that um, some things change in November and things change even more in uh, 2024. And perhaps we can try to, to right this ship and get us back on the path that uh, this country belongs on. Christina Hagan, former Ohio State Representative, member of the Ohio Elections Commission. Thank you, Christina. Always appreciate your insights. We'll talk to you next week. Absolutely. Thank you. 10.53. We'll take a time out here. I've got time for phone calls now. Then we're going to have week in review after the top of the hour. We'll take more phone calls after that. So this is a good chance for you. 216-901-0945. Dollar son. We'll get you on the radio. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Franz on AM 1420, The Answer. Eight minutes after 11 o'clock, our final hour of this 
program and our final hour of this week. And you know how we like to spend this final hour of this week. We like to bring you this. Always Right Radio, Week in Review. We'd like to take take a look back at some of the best interviews, some of the best segments, things that we have had during the week in case you missed them for your uh, consideration. We'll bring them to you again. Over two weeks ago, the federal government acting on that warrant from a Trump-hating judge went ahead and raided Mar-a-Lago. Well, on a Fox News show with uh, Trey Gowdy, our uh, congressman Jim Jordan said that 14 whistleblowers from the FBI had come to his office with information on that raid and other issues pertaining to this out-of-control FBI. So I asked Congressman Jordan, what do you make of the fact that nobody believes you and the left is mocking you repeatedly, doubting you and your claim about those 14 whistleblowers? Well, yeah, it's, it's at least 14, and they've come to our office on a host of issues. What I said on Trey Gowdy was they've come to us on the political nature at the Justice Department. So we've had them initially come to us on the whole school boards issue, which you and I have talked about numerous times, uh, and we've been digging into sent countless letters on that. So we've had them to us about uh, multiple whistleblowers on the school board issue, multiple whistleblowers come forward on the school board issue direct relating to the threat tag designation, this EDU officials, the threat tag that, that, uh, the, that, that's put on parents who are investigated. And we know because of whistleblowers, over 20 uh, dozen uh, parents have been investigated. We've had whistleblowers come forward on the January 6th concerns they've had. Uh, and then uh, we've had more whistleblowers come forward and talk to us uh, about the pressure that agents are under to categorize and catalog cases as domestic violence extremism. So in a broad sense, they're coming forward talking about the political nature, and I anticipate more whistleblowers coming forward and talking to us about other problems they see there, and maybe even this issue that, that, uh, that happened two weeks ago where they went after President Trump. But my point was, this is how political this place has become, and we see that as it manifests itself, of course, in the biggest way when we saw the, the raid on President Trump's personal residence. You know, we think there are huge problems at the Justice Department at the highest levels, but there are all kinds of good rank and file uh, agents who we know that we know that there are 14 at least because we've had more than that come come talk to our office directly about the political impact and the political nature of the Justice Department. Um, and and frankly, we're we're going to have more come. I know it because uh, and, and the same thing has happened with with Senator Grassley. You've had agents go there, and 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 one of the agents that that uh, talked to him about this, Timothy Tebolt. We had other whistleblowers come to us and talk to us about that same individual. So this is how serious this problem is. And, of course, uh, we saw it in, in the biggest way, uh, the political nature of the Justice Department, when we saw what they did to President Trump over the last couple of weeks. What can you do for these whistleblowers? They come to you not just for conversation. They come to you saying, this is a problem. We want action. So when your office receives a, well, you know, a tip, a complaint, a, you know, a piece of information from a whistleblower about some of these things going on, what do you do about it? What do you do with it? We, we, we begin to tell their story. And, and frankly, I think this underscores just how serious it is, the fact that they're willing to come to Senator Grassley and to our office um, at a time when we're in the minority where we don't have subpoena power and we can't dig into it as much as we would like, tells you again, just sort of underscores how serious this political problem is at the Justice Department, that they're willing to come to us while we're in the minority. Because really all we can do is begin to tell their story. We can write to the Justice Department, talk about concerns raised by this particular whistleblower, uh, and we've done that. But you can't, you just don't have the same leverage and, and, and power that you have if you're in the, uh, if you're in the majority. 
So, again, I think that just underscores how serious it is that they say, in spite of the fact that the Republicans are in the minority, I'm still going to go talk to them because what's going on is so egregious, we have to do this. And that's what's beginning to happen in a, in a way I have never seen in my time in Congress. Also this week on Always Right Radio, we talked with Kenny Shu, president of Color Us United, author of An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. We talked about the story of a small community college in California, which is the latest subject of a federal lawsuit filed by students who say they were denied an opportunity to express their free speech. Specifically, they wanted to hang posters that opposed communism. They weren't allowed to do that. Pro-communist posters were welcome. Anti-communist posters had to be taken down. The goal of the lawsuit, they say, is to ensure everyone has the right to free expression. I hope it's more than that. I hope it's to punish the university. So I asked Kenny Shu about his thoughts on a university saying that in the name of diversity and inclusion, uh, we welcome all kinds of great free independent thought unless it's something we disagree with. Yeah, diversity and inclusion sounds really inclusive, doesn't it? Sure. Um, the uh, this is have you, if, I don't know if any of the people who are listening here, and I'm sure many have, have read Herbert Marcuse's Repressive Tolerance. But it's an essay he wrote in 1965, and Herbert Marcuse is a communist Frankfurt School thinker, one of the founders of critical theory in our country. And basically, he argues for the suppression of speech in which that he finds reprehensible, which is, of course, anti-communist speech. Um, he views this as necessary for engendering the communist revolution because, you know, this, this idea of tolerating all viewpoints uh, is just going to create and propagandize the Western hegemonic narrative of capitalism. Therefore, we need to take away the viewpoint propagating this kind of thing. And a lot of this protest against free speech comes from Marcuse's work. Um, and this Young America's Foundation protest for Freedom Week falls directly in line. These students are simply just exercising their right to speak about the values in the country that they love and they care about. And yet all of these leftists are shouting them down while all of these leftists are demanding platforms to be able to speak their philosophy. If you're going to have a free speech culture in our country, you have to do it for both parties. But the left only wants free speech for them, not for views that they disagree with. And it just goes back to this Marcuse essay, repressive tolerance. Yeah. The idea that tolerating all viewpoints is not what we should do in this country. In fact, we should be propping up communist viewpoints and silencing those who disagree. That is the progressive viewpoint these days. This is why they come up with this term hate speech, right? Because supposedly the speech that is free, that is made by people, but does not fit in their ideology, can now be classified as hate speech. And hate speech is not protected by the First Amendment, according to the left, which is wrong. It's not true. Hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. I can tell you when I was in college at Davidson College, and I said things like, hey, what about, um, how do you guys feel about uh, redistributing the top 10% of GPAs to the bottom 10%? You know, <laughs> uh, give, just, given, just given that, and many people disagreed, some people called what I said hate speech. <laughs> and they were able to use this justification to attempt to silence me. It, it's, it's just, this is the culture on campus. You disagree with the left, they call you hate speech, they try to to, to take out your free speech away from you. That's what they do. On Thursday this week, we talked to Dr. Everett Piper about his latest in the Washington Times, All Republicans Are Terrorists. 
So says the left. Dr. Piper references 1984, not the year, but the book, and some of the parallels we see to our current times. While we try to preserve 1776, they want Orwell's 1984 to brand Republicans. Uh, Here's Dr. Piper. Well, I'd also say uh, I want 1776. I don't want 1917. And 1917 was the Bolshevik Revolution and the rise of Marxist power, uh, essentially worldwide. And those two revolutions stand in stark contrast. 1776 was a revolution for human freedom, human dignity, grounded in the assumption of self-evident truths endowed to us by our creator. You've got 1917, the rise of the Bolshevik Revolution, and the upraised fist of power, human power, oligarchs, telling everybody else how they should live their lives. And really, that's the Democratic Party today. And we we talk about Orwell all the time because, I mean, <laughs> Orwell warned of uh, of a time when right would become wrong and wrong would become right simply because Big Brother said so. Doublespeak, the dumbing down of the definition of words, that nothing means anything anymore other than what Big Brother says it means. And that's where we are today, to the point where if you're a Republican— If you're a conservative, they are now officially telling you that you are dangerous, you are an extremist. In fact, uh, who is it? Uh, Edward Luce, the associate editor for the Financial Times, said last week that Republicans are the most dangerous political force in the world, bar none. That's his language. He says, I've covered extremism and violent ideologies around the world, and I have never come across a political force more nihilistic, dangerous, and contemptible than today's Republicans. Nothing close. Close quote. And the former CIA director, Michael Hayden, chimed in immediately on that tweet and said, I agree. Are you serious? We've got the Taliban and Al-Qaeda beheading Christians, and you're going to call Republicans the most dangerous, nihilistic, contemptible um, uh, force on earth? This is where they are right now. If you disagree with them, a few years ago they told you that you were deplorable, that you were a thoughtless rube, that you lacked gray matter. And now they've gone beyond labeling you stupid to labeling you dangerous. And that if you even venture into the public square to challenge their ideology, to challenge their politics, to challenge their view of, oh, let's say green economics or their sexual nihilism or how they're going to conduct their schools and teach your kids what's wrong rather than teach your kids what's right, where they're going to elevate Black Lives Matter and it's neo-Marxism as if it's a good thing rather than a bad thing, where they're going to talk about social emotional learning as if that is the highest goal of the academy rather than teaching your kids how to read and write and count. If you say anything like like what I just said, then you are an extremist and you are contemptible and you're nihilistic and you should be silenced. I mean, that's where we are within the public square in the debate right now when it comes to democratic thought. And that's a very dangerous place for us to be. And our last feature on today's Week in Review on Always Right Radio, A.J. Rice, author of the new book, The Woking Dead, How Society's Vogue Virus Destroys Our Culture. And it's doing exactly that in his book. A.J. describes the best ways to defeat the woke mob, ways we can overcome certain elements of it. But there's so much to overcome, so much ground to cover. And I had to ask A.J., is wokeism here to stay? Well, I, I think there's an expiration date because if there is a true insur- if there is an insurrection happening in the United States, it's happening with parents. All right. And look, I think this is an 80 percent issue because whether it's cancel culture or CRT or or, you know, the 1619 project, whatever it is, virtue signaling with masks on for no reason while you're riding a bike with no helmet. 
you know, whatever, whatever it is, they've look. This is cultural Marxism. It's been around about a hundred years. It predates World War One, and what they knew then, they know now, and that is, you're never going to get the workers of the world here, blue collar people, plumbers in Ohio, carpenters in Ohio. They love their country, so they're not going to overthrow the government. You got to get somebody else to overthrow it. Who? Well, here's who: the entertainment industry, academia. They, you know, got into the media, obviously, and and the Democratic Party seems to be the home of them currently. And the thing that ties them all together is big tech. So it, there is a fight happening. Um, big tech acts as the sort of cartilage, the aircraft carrier they all refuel and take off from. But people are waking up from this. I mean, they really are. If you got you, we need some more guys like Bill Maher who don't they don't agree with France and Rice on. You know, he might not on global warming or immigration, but he agrees with us on this, right? Dave Chappelle's not exactly Ben Carson. He agrees with us on this. So if there's more people out there, you know, that will push back on this abridgment of free speech, we can win. We can absolutely win, and the parents are really fighting back. I mean, look what happened in Florida this week. I mean, all these school districts that flipped. So, yeah, I mean, I I think there is an expiration date. We just have to keep fighting. I want to talk about big tech for a second, um, because when you say, you know, that's kind of the engine that drives this, I'm, I'm just basically asking a chicken and egg question here. Does big tech control left-wing education? Does big tech control left-wing politics? Or do left-wing politics and education and media control big tech? Well, they're the superhighway that they're moving their, their crazy ideas on, right? So if you don't want Gary and Steve in the women's locker room, they can cancel that opinion, right? I mean, look. The left fought against separate but equal. Uh, this was, this was. I mean, they they were the people driving that, right? And now it's it's a shame, but France and Rice, we've got to create our own church, our own, our own radio show, and our own uh, uh, social media platforms. And our, I mean, it wasn't supposed to be this way. We were supposed to be one country. Um, but I really do believe, and I'm in I'm in Swamp Central, you know, right outside the. Uh, D.C. and Northern Virginia, and I saw what Youngkin did, and Youngkin was fueled because of wokeism, because of this garbage um, that they're pushing on us. It, it, it's not just tearing down General Lee and his horse Traveler. They're coming for everything. They're coming for the rosary, Catholics. They the are. rosaries, apparently. Yeah, white supremacy, gun uh, gun people with the rosary. Look out. All those Jesuit uh, priests with their machine guns. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, but no, I'm telling you, you you know big tech they, they they have the ability to to pick winners and losers but we are adapting we are creating our own platforms it's just a shame because we're supposed to be one country and i just think that you know most of politics usually takes place between the 40 yard line right um but i i do believe this is an 80% issue i think the parents whether they're right of center left of center wherever they're at they pretty much don't want to be told that this group or that group hates the other one or, or was born with original sin of racism. 
I thought when I asked you a moment ago about whether there's an end to this at some point, you say there is an end date. I thought that maybe we would have a glimpse of it when um, when Elon Musk was going to buy Twitter, and now it looks like that's not going to happen. I thought that might kind of right the ship or at least be the first step. But the fact that that's not going to happen and Twitter is just as rabidly uh, uh, unfair and uh, you know censoring and suppressing of conservative speech as they have ever been, uh, that kind of makes me wonder, again, if this is the driver, as you called big tech, if they're driving all of this, why do you still have that faith that there's going to be an end date to this? Well, because we are getting creative ourselves, and we are, you know, we're, we're taking Twitter's power when we create other platforms for us to operate on, right? Whether it's Rumble or Getter, whatever it is, um, we're going to have to, you know, again, we're going to have to be innovative. Um, you know, talk radio in particular as a vertical medium I mean, you can you can obviously knock talk radio off of its live stream, but what the brilliance of it, of course, still is that it's an actual broadcast signal, and they haven't figured out a way to censor, deplatform, demonetize it. They could go after your advertisers, of course, but they would have until, to until until they bring back the fairness doctrine. Until they try they that, could, I mean, but uh, look, and and you and I know Rush and Sean and and France and everyone, you guys have talked about that for a long time. Um, I mean, I was Laura Ingram's executive producer for five years, uh, you know, and we did plenty of segments on them bringing that up. But, you know, I don't see that coming. Maybe. I mean, they would have to control the government. I don't hear them talking about it now. They control all branches of government. Um, they wanna, they're, they're more worried about us digitally. And that's who these people are, though. They're digital brown shirts. I got booted off LinkedIn about a month ago. For, and we we use LinkedIn at Publius PR to basically share interviews and, and columns that our clients write. So I put two Naomi Wolfs up and one Gregory Wrightstone, and boom, I was in the penalty box. <laughs> LinkedIn penalty box. I didn't even know there was one. So, I mean, they're, they're going to keep coming at us. But they are. We need, to convince, we need to convince more honest Democrat libertarians that, you know, like Bill Maher, like some of these guys, Barry Weiss, there's, you know, David Rubin, they're out there. We've got to get them on board to push back on this. I mean, yeah, look, we, Bill Maher's an atheist. He knows that, you know, uh, you know, the sisters of the little sisters of the poor aren't going to show up with an IED and blow him up if he makes fun of Catholicism. But look what happened to Salman Rushdie. Don't think for one second that what happened to Salman Rushdie isn't cancel culture. It's what it's the inevitable conclusion of it. If they can't cancel you digitally, they may show up at your uh, work or, or event. This has been Always Right Radio, Week in Review. Oops, I jumped the gun there just a little bit. Welcome. Uh, final segment of Always Right Radio. I want to use this to promote a few things, including a couple of phone calls and also a reminder of tomorrow's Northeast Ohio Classical Academy's Family Picnic Fundraiser in Medina. Uh, I had Bob Anthony on, uh, who is the president of the uh, NEOCA, and uh, it's a such going to be such a great event. So important, too, to raise funds to get that first charter school built. Tuition-free charter school teaching classical education, the really true alternative for those uh, trying to get their kids out of the uh, the woke public schools big big family family event tomorrow the picnic fundraiser is um, 
at the Medina Community Church near the square on South Broadway in Medina. You can RSVP at the website. Go to NEOC Academy, NEOC Academy, altogether, dot org, uh, and then slash picnic, forward slash picnic, NEOCA. Well, and I'm sorry, let me do that again. NEOC Academy, altogether. Uh, NEOCAcademy.org slash picnic. You can RSVP there. And, um, I, it's a fantastic, fantastic and very important event. So I just want to uh, share that one with you. Now I want to share this one to you from Medina County to Lake County. Mike Zurin is on the line with us. Mike Zurin is the treasurer of Lake County. We had him on before talking about um, the Lake County business roundtables that have been uh, put together to try to support and grow business and grow the local economy in Lake County. And Mike's got something else for us this morning. Hey, Mike, how are you? Good, good. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm good. What do you got going on? Well, um, we started a uh, Lake County Opiate Alliance um, a couple months ago. We've had a couple meetings. Um, the idea behind it was with the ad- epidemic out there with uh, so many uh, overdoses that have happened, especially Lake County, Trumbull County. Um, we wanted to get the uh, local government agencies, nonprofits, faith-based organizations together and um, bring in individuals who were addicted, uh, who have gone through jail and, and, and they're in the recovery process and they're um, actually helping others overcome their addiction. We had our second meeting on Wednesday. We had 36 uh, local agencies in and um, had some really powerful testimonies uh, from individuals and they, they really identify um, the barriers and issues people are facing to when they come out of jail and uh, what they need to do to um, go from reliance on government programs to be uh, to be self-sufficient and um, and and helping others overcome addiction, and uh, it's it's been a, a a blessing of a of a meeting because it's really uh, identified a lot of uh, of things that we could we can handle that are you know that, that really don't cost any money, but to um, identify what we can do to help. And, yeah, um, because we also, the, epi- the we opioid had- epidemic, the opioid epidemic in this country, and yes, in Northeast Ohio too, is just beyond. It's out of control, and something needs to be done more than just. Obviously, we've got to start cracking down on the smugglers, the dealers, the sellers, the cartels, and so the on border. and so forth. But at the border, <laughs> exactly. But once they're here, they're here, and then we've got to deal with the people who are addicted, and we've got to find ways to try to save their lives and uh, and make them contr- uh, productive uh, and contributing members of society too. So I think it's a great idea, and I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, um, we had a, a, pre- a presenter yesterday uh, around Wednesday, Relink.org, which is a uh, which is a great organization that um, created a, a web-based platform that has uh, resources for anybody who is going through addiction uh, or family uh, crisis. How, how can anybody um, who's listening right now avail themselves of that, or if they know somebody who needs to know about that, where can they go? It, it's uh, Relink.org, right Just online. Relink, uh, they can type like it, it in. Sounds. Okay. Relink.org, and they, there's 20,000 different resources they could search by zip code, and it will pull up everything from um, from food banks to um, uh, human trafficking uh, help, if somebody if that is happening, That's to counseling, awesome. to treatment facilities, to housing. Um, it just has all these resources. Uh, within walking distance of, um, of I'll make sure to, I'll up. make sure to share that too, Mike. I appreciate. It. I've got to go here. I want to get one more call in before we're done, but I'll make sure to re, uh, to uh, post that as well. Relink dot org for those who are in need. I want to get Lisa Woods in before we're done. She's got another event coming up, also in Medina yesterday. Sounds like you could spend the whole day in Medina if you want to start out at McFan, right, Lisa? That's right. Tomorrow's a great day to be in Medina. Tell us about it. 
So tomorrow we have Neil Peterson is coming to speak. And as you know, he did not get on the ballot. But, you know, he has a uh, unique journey to tell us about. Um, he's a pastor, uh, and, and he has uh, served in... Uh, but, if the alternative, <laughs> but if the alternate is, is Dan Whaley, then what are we doing? Now we're stuck. So you're right. I mean, I'm glad you guys are going to talk about it. I'm glad you're going to address it, um, because obviously there's got to be a way for the Republican Party to get out of its own way and make sure that we actually have people we can support running for these offices. Absolutely. And I'll be at the picnic fundraiser for the NEO... Uh, CA oh, as so well. you will spend the whole day out and about. See, that's what I advise people to <laughs> go to, go to McFan, listen to Neil Peterson, take part in that great discussion in the morning, then go to the picnic, the NEOCA picnic in the afternoon, and make a day of it. Lisa, thanks for the call. I, I appreciate it. Have a great uh, event tomorrow. Thank you. That's all the time we've got. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my crew, Johnny and Marianne and uh, and uh, Marcy. And uh, guess what? Thanks to you for listening. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Stay free. We'll see you Monday. Bye bye. Let's go, Brandon.